is where all scripture must drive towards. It must go straight to the heart. Christ is not just redeeming theoretical sinners. He is not the head over some just imagined church. Do you remember who you were? Is what Paul is saying. He says two things. We were once alienated. To speak of alienation, it reminds us that our condition outside of Christ is not one of neutrality. We must never imagine a world in which there are Christians and then there are a bunch of ambivalent free agents floating around the world who are otherwise passive towards God. That is not at all the picture that Scripture paints, the picture that Scripture gives to us. To speak of alienation is to testify that in our natural state, apart from Christ, we are actually severed. We are actually cut off. We are estranged. We are detached. We are alienated. But from what? Because sometimes being detached is a good thing. Sometimes a little distance is helpful. What are we alienated from? Is it just mere religious traditions? Is it from otherwise what would be good habits? And you've just you've lost your way, Colossians. Is it a sense of inner peace? Have you lost a sense of purpose? Is that all that Paul is saying? That you once were alienated from what? Well, in his letter to the Ephesian church, chapter 4, verse 18, he says, you have been alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. In our natural state, we are alienated from the life of God. And so this is one of the many reminders in the Bible that in our sin, we are living contrary, opposed to God's good design. We were intended for fellowship with God to be animated and enlivened by him. We were created to enjoy the presence of this creator God and to live in glad dependence upon him. But because of sin, the Bible says that we're actually now cut off from this life. We are actually alienated from this. We are severed from the great security of knowing our creator as our keeper. Sin alienates us from God. But he says something else. This is a self-inflicted alienation. Lest we begin to think that we are somehow the victims in this horrible condition, the scriptures announce that we're actually the offenders. This is self-imposed and a self-inflicted alienation. We are hostile in mind. We are Doing evil deeds, Paul says. Again, if we go back to Ephesians 4, 18, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. Remember what sin is. If it were only the deeds that we do or fail to do, if that's all that your definition of sin is, it's half right. 
but it's not fully correct. If that's all that you believe sin to be, the things that you do or don't do, you have a shallow understanding of the severity of your condition. Sin is a corruption. It's a corruption of nature that actually sets us at odds with this God so that we are hostile towards him. It's a disposition of who we are. This means in our natural state that we are suspicious of God. That our first inclination is to believe that he is evil. That he's malicious. That he's unjust. That he's inconsistent. That he's unfair. We see his very presence as a threat to our well-being. And every remembrance of him, every reflection of him, is offensive to us. That is the corruption that sin brings in our natural state apart from Christ. Under the bondage and under the corruption of sin, this is scripture's diagnosis of you and I apart from Christ. Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you hear that? And do you find yourself pushing back against the severe language of Scripture? Asking, apart from Jesus, am I really hostile towards God? Is that a fair statement of my life? Do you mean to tell me that my dear aunt and my sweet neighbor are enemies of God? I mean, they're not Christians, I I understand. But are they actually hostile towards God? Is that a fair assessment of her, of him? Christian, let me ask you, are you confident in your response to these sort of questions? Are you clear what the biblical answer is to those very important and legitimate questions? Because the answer is yes. The sweet aunt, the dear neighbor, though not professing or trusting in Christ in their natural state, are hostile towards God. Doing evil deeds. But we have to step back and say, how can that be true? Because I see who they are. I see their manner of life. I see what a kind neighbor he is. She sends me $20 on my birthday, and she's so kind. How could you say nanny is evil? Because of what the scriptures say about us in our natural condition. How is it that every man, woman, boy, and girl is born in alienation from God, hostile in mind, doing evil? 
Well, for a number of ways. For one, we can live as if there is no God. The offense of undiluted blasphemy is to stand as a created being against a creator and say, you do not exist, therefore you have no authority over my life. To insist that you exist apart from him and that you answer to no one but yourself is to insist that there is no God and by definition that is evil. We can also live as those wishing there was no God. Not ready to make the definitive statement that there isn't a God, but if I'll be honest with you, I wish he wasn't around. The sort of thinking that knows there's some sort of divine being that I'm accountable to in some way, but I seek to push that thought down, to drown it out, and to live in denial of it. That's evil. That's hostility. Wishing that there was no God. But there's another way we do this. Not only insisting or wishing, but also imagining. Imagining God to be what we want him to be. How many are in this category? We're warmed to the idea of a God. I'm not opposed at all. In fact, I think what this country needs most of all is a God. And we begin to imagine the sort of God that we think and everybody else needs. And we begin to imagine him, not according to the revelation of Scripture, but according to the desires of our own minds. According to what is consistent with how we live. And what is accommodating to what we believe. And to imagine a God who is not God, but who is a reflection of us, is evil. It's hostility. It's idolatry. We are alienated and hostile in mind. Does this describe you? In some way, some form or another? Insisting there is no God, wishing there was no God, imagining another God? Then hear the warning of Scripture. You are at enmity with God. You are hostile in mind. You're doing evil deeds. This means, friend, that all of the authority that this God has, all of the justice that he is, all of his power and his might are turned against you. You are hostile towards this God in your opposition. And friend, make no mistake, these excuses and distortions of the scripture are nothing less than evil because God has been nothing Less than good. Always. He is the sustainer. And that he is the one who ensures that there is breath in your lungs this morning. That there is oxygen in your bloodstream. Whether you acknowledge him or not. He's that good. The truth of the matter remains. Back in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And friend, if you do not say amen to that verse, that I have been created for him, then that is your clue that you are hostile in mind. 
that you are alienated. Because the Christian is somebody who is brought to see God as he is and themselves as they are. The Christian is one who can say, I once was alienated from God. I was hostile in mind. I didn't believe it for a season, but I have come to see I was actually a hater of God. I imagined God to be whatever I wanted him to be. I tried to dismiss him. I tried to deny the fact that he was even there. I was. But what changed? Why does the Christian speak in past tense? Why does Paul say, you were? Because he's not only concerned about who they were, he's concerned about what he has done. Do you see verse 22? What has he done? He has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In contrast to this deep hostility and alienation, the Christian is transformed positionally and relationally. God, in his grace, does something to us that transforms not only our condition, but our experience. What is that? Paul says he's reconciled us. By definition, reconciliation involves a change of attitude and relationship from enmity and estrangement to friendship, to harmony, to peace. To say that we are reconciled is to declare that the enmity and the offense of sin is removed, not forgotten about, it's actually removed by a just resolution. When the Old Testament priests blessed Israel with the shining of God's face and the gift of his peace, it was because of the surety of their being at peace with God. That God had provided a sacrifice as the means to atone for their sins. And the priest could stand up and speak the blessing of God upon the people of God because peace had come. These images, number six, you may be familiar with. A shining face, a gracious countenance. All the very images that describe a God smiling upon his people, well pleased at the sight of them, to give them his pleasure, to give them his favor. And this reconciliation that Paul speaks of gets at the heart of man's problem. It's not merely that we're at odds with God and he's otherwise neutral towards us, Because of the hostility of our mind and the evil deeds and working amongst us, it means that God is actually hostile towards us in our sin. The accent of the New Testament teaching concerning reconciliation, it actually falls upon the removal of God's offense towards those who sin against him. That's why we hear language like not accounting their trespasses against them. That's 2 Corinthians 5.19. As Paul's talking about reconciliation, he says that the heart of reconciliation is that God is not 
counting their trespasses against them. Somehow, some way, for some reason, that's removed. It's not credited against you. So then, the ultimate confidence of our peace with God and our being reconciled to him, it's not primarily, friend, with your change of mind. That suddenly you changed your mind about God. That's good news. But that's not the confidence that you have to stand before him. Your change of mind about who God is or who he isn't is only half of the problem. What really needs to change is God's relationship to you. God's gracious work in Christ. We are reconciled to God because instead of God counting our trespasses against us, he's counted them against Christ. And this is precisely where Paul goes next. We're reconciled to God because he's reconciled to us by a sacrifice. He's reconciled us through sacrifice. The sure foundation of our reconciliation, it rests upon this great confidence that God is the author and the initiator of this newfound condition. How good is that? How many times in your relationships have you wanted reconciliation? You've wanted to make things right, but you have no idea if the other person's even willing The good news of the gospel says right here that God is the initiator and he is actually the author of this reconciliation. God accomplished reconciliation by Christ's priestly sacrifice for sinners. This means that the invitation, 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. It's grounded upon the very news He made him to be sin who knew no sin for us. This has everything to do with this one word called imputation. We are reconciled through the death of the Son by the blood of his cross and the body of his flesh through his death. We are reconciled by a costly and a sacrificial atonement. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by through the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Thomas Manton. When we had alienated our hearts from God, refused his service, and could expect nothing but the rigor of his law and vindictive justice, then he spared not his own son to bring about this reconciliation for us. He has reconciled us by a sacrifice. But Paul also says in that same verse that he's reconciled us for a purpose. Reconciled by sacrifice for a purpose. What is that purpose? In order to. That's a purpose clause. In order to. Present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. To be presented holy, blameless, above reproach is made able to dwell with a holy God. Ephesians 5, speaking of the mystery of Christ in the church, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing 
that she might be holy and without blemish. 1 Corinthians 6.11. Some of you have memorized this because it begins with these words, and such were some of you. And in the list of what Paul lays out before that, you see your former self. You see the very conduct that grieves you, the sin against God. And then to hear, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Good news. The goal of reconciliation is not merely just release from God's judgment, as good as that would be. The good news of reconciliation is the restoration of God's friendship. This is the sweet delight of genuine Christian living. Do you know what it means to be friends with God? Do you know that by experience? Think about what it is to be at odds with God. Consider how soon and how easily he can revenge your debt against him. And think also how miserable you would be forever in not being in a state of peace. To be at odds with God. And then also think how willing God is to make peace on such reasonable terms. The scriptures announce that he has done all the heavy lifting to make reconciliation. What he calls you and I to do is to trust in his son. To trust in the reconciliation that he says, this is my idea. This is my work. Trust me. The goal of the gospel is more than just mere pardon, but restoration to God. He forgives, he atones, he reconciles, he restores us to himself so that we might dwell with him, so that we might enjoy him, so that we might delight in him and glorify in him. He's not just making a kingdom of people who are no longer criminals. He's making a kingdom of people whom he calls friends to reconcile us to himself. Christian, he has reconciled you for a purpose, and that purpose is to be before him in friendship, to delight with him, and to be in communion with him, to trust him, to speak well of him, to rejoice in him, to praise him. All of this is the language of Scripture of what it means to be a Christian who's reconciled to God. Who we were, what he's done, but then he says also how we're to live. Look down at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Have you noticed how is the doctrine of grace is unpacked and expounded in Scripture? There's a background concern that can sometimes lurk, that's sometimes raised, whether in Paul's writings or just recurring at various points in church history. And maybe you've even thought that concern this morning as you've heard the free 
offer of the gospel, the glorious good news of grace and what it does for sinners. The concern is basically this. If this gracious reconciliation restores and liberates hateful sinners, won't grace promote more indulgence in sin? If we talk too much about grace, won't people get the wrong idea about sin? And the concerned questioner is put at ease as God's word continues to say, no, quite the contrary, actually. Those who are reconciled are the same ones who continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the glorious gospel that they first heard. How do we live? Paul says, in light of all this, we live as those continuing to trust in Christ. Those who are reconciled will most certainly continue. And the fact of their reconciliation is made evident as they continue. Listen to our confession. Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 17. This is the first paragraph. Those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called, sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in the grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He goes on very pastorally. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, Yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. Meaning, our gracious reconciliation does not produce this passive fatalism that says, I'm reconciled, taking no concern for my soul and God's law. Instead, this gracious work of reconciliation enlivens God's people to say, I'm reconciled. I must run the race that is set before me with all endurance and patience and joy. This is the person who says, I've tasted. I've seen. The Lord is good. And they turn to the person next to him and they say, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. That's someone who's tasted of this grace and knows what it means to be made a friend of God. This is the same person who says, I consider everything, absolutely everything, even the good things that would diminish the grace of God as actually a detrimental loss. Therefore, I consider them actually to be rotting garbage in order that I might gain Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the theme of Scripture from beginning to end. Grace enlivens us. Grace teaches us. Grace enables us to continue to trust in Christ. Our reconciliation to God is made visible as we continue in the faith, and for all those whom God reconciles, He certainly preserves. We live as those continuing to trust in Christ. But He says also, we live being strengthened 
by the hope of this same gospel. It's been rightfully, and I believe wonderfully said, that the gospel is not simply the ABCs of the faith, but the A through Z of the Christian life. The good news that brought about reconciliation is the same good news that guides us forward in our sanctification. In contrast to the temporary believers of Luke 8, 13, that have no root, that they endure only for a while, God's people continue onward. And Paul uses several architectural images here in Colossians to show how we, as God's people, move forward according to the blueprints of the gospel. The language he uses is very much building language, architectural language. He says that we continue being stabilized, using a word that speaks of a foundation. How important is a foundation? If you're not sure, go ask a contractor among us, or go try and build a house with no idea how important a foundation is. You'll soon find out. A grounding or establishing that ensures the building is going to be sound. We continue being stabilized. He says that we continue on steadfastly, not shifting. Well, the ground may shake. The floods may rise. The rain may beat against the house. But it remains standing. Why? What is the reason for this continuing stability in the Christian's life? Well, what Paul says here in verse 23 is that it's because of a continuance in the hope of the gospel that they heard. It's a continuance in the faith. The same message that's bearing fruit among them and is being proclaimed under all creation. The same gospel that converts us becomes our continued stability and our strength as we journey onward. Not the ABCs. The A through Z. And so how many Christian pilgrims, perhaps you, that have been enriched and nourished and strengthened as they continue on in faith, hearing again of the good news of the gospel? For even as the people of God, as we are delivered from the bondage of sin, you know by experience the corruption of sin remains even as a child of God. We still feel the strong pull of temptation. We still give way to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And in our weakness, there remains another temptation. Do you know what it is? It is this temptation to hide our sin to justify our sin, to explain it away, to excuse it, or to be some, become crushed under the guilt of it. But then we hear again of the hope of the gospel. We continue according to the same message that opened our eyes. We continue in the faith, in the hope of the gospel. Though I was... Once alienated and hostile in mind, I know that I am reconciled through the death of Christ. And I preach to myself that because of that, I know that I stand before him as holy, 
and blameless. I stand in Christ's righteousness above reproach. I don't have to excuse this sin. It makes no sense to justify it. This weight of guilt that I feel, Christ has borne my heavy load. The hope of the gospel becomes the strength that continues forward within the Christian life. How many of us have underlined this or said out loud in our desperation with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You sit there for a while, but then because of the gospel, you keep reading. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation. I'm reconciled. I am a friend of God, made holy and blameless and above reproach. The grace that first opened my eyes and freed me from the burden continues to restore my sight, showing me the sufficiency of Christ's redemptive work and this great gospel hope. It urges me forward, and I keep going. The same gospel that saved me sustains me. So I ask again, what has sin done to us? And what has Christ done for sinners? It's the Puritan David Clarkson who said, he's the most faithful friend and worthy of most esteem and affection that deals most plainly with us in reference to the discovery of our sin. He is the most faithful friend and worthy of most esteem and affection that deals most plainly with us in reference to the discovery of our sin. Christian, can you say that Christ is the most faithful friend who comes to you by his own word, ensuring the discovery of your sin and the grace abounding for sinners? Do you know him in that way? Because that is the most faithful friend you will ever find in Christ and any earthly friend that draws alongside of you. For it's only by this faithful friend, our Lord Jesus, that this plain word is, is given to us. And we're then able to say, I once was alienated from God. But now I'm reconciled through the death of the Son upon the cross. And being reconciled, I am confident, joyfully confident that in him I am made holy, I am made blameless, that I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. Therefore, I go into this new week continuing in the faith, grounded, established, strengthened in the gospel, resting in the finished work. That is what a Christian says. Because the Christian is considered well, what is sin done to them? And what has Christ done for sinners? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you to whom Jesus for refuge have fled? Father, we do pray that you would cause the good news of this gospel not only to convert us, but to sustain us. 
Lord, we ask and we pray that as we hear you have done all of the heavy lifting of reconciling sinners to yourself, Lord, cause that reality to be true for any who hate you and are cut off from you. Father, cause that good word to be true for all who struggle under the weight of sin, grieved over falling into sin. Give us great confidence and rejoicing to hear and to know that in your Son we are made blameless, above reproach, and your friends, we pray. Amen.